Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. All right, episode 26 of the Create More podcast with the co-founder of Fathom Architects, Justin Nichols. This uh, this was another podcast that was recorded uh, just before Christmas, at the end of 2020, as part of my uh, big batch of uh, podcasts to keep me tidied over until the end of COVID, whenever it bloody finishes. Um, it's a really cool episode. Uh, if you're if you're not an architect, this is a lot of like high level discussion about like what it feels like to start an architecture practice the excitement of creating a business from scratch and that is like that's a central theme that comes through all the podcasts fathom are a london-based architecture practice their studio is over near the shard uh, so it makes it very easy for anyone to get there it was great cycling there because you cannot miss the shard um so i was in the studio it was really fun we talk all about what it's like to start an architecture practice what it feels like you have to be he's now a mentor he's now runs a company um the kind of highs and lows at the beginning probably more highs um and the reason i was really interested with fathom is i feel they're quite unique i talk about this in the podcast that um uh, that one of the business partners is uh, from a film background actually so he brought a lot of the kind of production uh, knowledge and kind of the business side of production for kind of um, film production into the architecture practice which I thought was a really interesting blend and Justin talks all about how they started and where they're going what the future looks like um, I also love all their branding that's a huge thing for me as well I love all the graphic side of stuff so that's really cool and uh, yeah I really hope you enjoy it and tune in to the end to hear who's on next the next podcast thanks bye So what do you think of the setup? So I give you I give you a little tour, right? So this is a mixing desk, and you can have four four different inputs, right? And then this is a special thing called a cloud lifter, and what it does is it powers these microphones. And the reason these are so expensive, these are the most expensive microphones you can buy, basically, not most expensive. Uh, you know, like uh-huh. Joe Rogan podcasts and stuff. Do you know, anyway, so no. the biggest podcast all uses. <laughs> and the reason they're really good is that if you have them really close to your mouth, in a couple of inches. So if you yeah. want to pull it a little bit closer, there you go. Yeah. yeah. So they have like super, like it's really powerful up to this, but then yeah. you can't hear any of their kind of any echo. It's going, it's got deadening software in there. Love that shit. It's really good. <laughs> it's really good. So. Yeah, uh, it is mo- it's monitor headphones as well. They are monitor they're, headphones. They're feeling pretty. Yeah. You feel, I think, yeah, I look very Craig David. I sometimes wear them in Teams meetings. So I've got them on <laughs> to drown out my kids in the background. And then I'm like, hmm. Because they're not cool headphones. I've so got to get a pair of monitor headphones, but there's no point if you're going to listen to music on an iPad, iPhone, is it? You say that, they're very good. Are they? They're very good. Okay. You'll just be nodding away. In on Bluetooth? No, no, you can't get be. these on Bluetooth, unfortunately. Yeah. You've got to get these dangly little cables. So, first of all, thank you, Justin, for coming on my podcast. Pleasure. Do you know much about my Create More podcast? Uh, not really. Not really. Good, <laughs> good. So, the reason I have selected you as one of my key guests is it's about creative entrepreneurs and the thing that i'm most interested in is that moment of when someone has a like a passion or a hobby or creative aspirations and they turn that into their job or their business and i actually think there's there's like a there's a huge moment that we'll talk about um, i'm sure when you first set something up that's yours 
and it's your own idea and your own aspiration and then seeing it growing and all of the challenges and <laughs> things that come along with it. Um, and so your architecture practice, Fathom, mm-hmm. do you know what, how long is it, how, when did you start? We started three weeks before the Brexit referendum vote, so about four and a half years ago. Oh, it's gone really quickly. Um, Again, we were discussing how, how time is just, we've lost time because of COVID. I think yeah. as well, when people say Brexit was that long ago, I'm like, is it really <laughs> that long ago? It's been that cloud that's been hovering for that long. <laughs> Apparently we've sorted. Apparently, yeah. So No idea how we've sorted it. <laughs> Just Laurie's backing up. So the the thing I was really interested in is, one, full disclosure, we worked together. Well, we never actually did a project together, but we both worked at a previous practice together. Yeah. And uh, we're both no longer at said practice. Um, and I was excited to understand, because I would imagine that... So I've done two series of Create More. And I know a little bit about the kind of demographic of people that listen. Mm-hmm. And it's quite a broad range of people. It's actually not just architects. There's quite a lot of other creative people because the guest list is across a whole different range of different people. So last week or oh, before Christmas, I interviewed um, Fred Mills, who's on the B1M. He does the biggest YouTube channel mm-hmm. for construction, um, which I, I think is really interesting. And then the week before, I interviewed uh, some guys who five years ago decided they wanted to build an e-bike. And now they they run a really successful bike manufacturing company just outside kind of Dulwich area. So and then the other guests lined up. There's like visualization specialists. So all of the things that I think they have in common are ultimately like people who wanted to do something and had the kind of passion and drive to do it on their own. And something we were talking about earlier, the way I described our old practice is very much like a warm bath. You know, when you're in a big big company, (laughs) all of the systems are in place. But you started your own company. And one of my first questions to you, um, how long from the time that you thought, I'm going to start my own practice to actually taking (laughs) the step of handing in (laughs) the big notice? Um, It's a tricky one. And I think probably the honest answer is it's always been there. (laughs) All the way back through to school, actually. And it sort of manifested itself in different moments. The reason why I left Foster's, and I was there from college for about 11 years, um, and then left Foster's to help Ken Shuttleworth set up Make Architects. And there was a moment there, I was like, I, I would be, for some reason, I felt being a board director at Foster's was terrifying. <laughs> I have no idea why, but it was just some, in my head, I got on with everybody, I really enjoyed working there. Um, I did speak to someone at that point about setting up a practice and uh, I thought actually make would be great because it would be great to learn how to set up a business, how to run a business and I hadn't had exposure to that side of things um, at that point and then went and did make and that went really well and I stayed there for probably much longer than I thought I would originally which was great and um, you know, some amazing jobs that you know and it was probably couple of years before I left I'd say I really seriously thought about it and I think you get to that moment where this has been niggling away in my mind since I was a child (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've got to do something about it soon and I've I've I found lots of excuses along the way not doing it yeah and if I don't do it now I'm going to be too old it's gonna be too late Um, so I think that was it's a very, very long gestation, if if that makes sense. Because I guess there's a point where you're like, okay, I'm going to do it. And I have to do a business case and like a plan. I yeah. need to work out like, 
cash flow? How do I start this? So I think what, what I was really interested in is that you, you started with a kind of business partner. Well, the, I, about two years before we started, I sat in my father-in-law's basement in Devon one Easter and I spent three days nonstop, apart from a bit of sleep, writing a business plan. And I had, I had a copy of uh, the Financial Times, how to set up your own business. And I had a copy of the RBA, how to set up a practice. And I merged what I'd learned from those two books into a business plan. And also the really boring bit of the business plan, which is the most important bit, which is the spreadsheet. And as my business partner, Tom, will tell you, I'm rubbish at spreadsheets. <laughs> um, but it enabled me to put a load of stuff on paper that was already crystallized in my mind because you're sitting there thinking about oh my god I don't know how to set up a business and when you go through that sort of list of things you've got to write down you suddenly realize that 80 percent of them are already sorted so on that day five six seven years ago it's like okay on a studio at London Bridge and it's like here we are you know seven years later sitting in a studio at London Bridge so this was always your plan to have an office here this yeah. is and you know for very selfish reasons that it's three stops away on the train but you know you've got to have some benefits of <laughs> balancing the stress of running your own business um and that made it much less overwhelming because suddenly you realize okay so the, what's this 20 percent? this last 20 percent is really about your brand and your you know what's your offer what what's and then you go okay so we need that's the bit we need to think about but i'm 80 percent of the way there um and to do that i think you then need to bring in other people and bounce those ideas so, so the business plan originally was just you and then then you were like okay i need some well it, it was written by me but it was never just me if that makes sense it's like it's identifying okay i, wouldn't, I now need to bring the, this is a team thing now we need to create the team and obviously that plan gets adjusted and tweaked and gets better so so because yeah. you would you would assume that uh, an architecture practice would be run by another architect right so it'd be, it'd be you you just have more and more architects but tom's background isn't in architecture is it it's no so um what i realized doing the spreadsheet is i wasn't very good at doing spreadsheets <laughs> and and i felt like i was slightly guessing at what the answers might be um so having someone there that had run businesses before was really important um and meant that jonathan and i could then focus on how we do the architecture and tom um, could focus on making sure the business works properly um, and, I th and I think that's been a real strength so that, so on one level it's it's about running business but actually on another level it's about Tom's background in other creative industries so he comes from um, film production so he's worked with a lot of ad agencies uh, a lot of advertising and so forth and I I always found the structure of that world much more fluid and much more interesting than the world of architecture that I come from, which is a kind of, you know, two big practices and uh, kind of big machines, if you like. Yeah. And it felt that the world was getting much more fluid in the way it works. So having someone with the experience of setting up teams and running businesses in that way was really helpful. And I think it also helped us communicate that to clients who, are, you know, some clients are used to those big yeah um in environments and feel more comfortable there so is, is when you when you say teams you don't mean projects you mean this office or does tom also the, help the, the, yeah, yeah the team a team is in a big group of people sitting in an office interesting because i i think there's so many there's so many uh there's so many similarities between the storytelling of a good architecture project to film and i'd imagine once you get to a certain scale a lot of these big projects 
across any industry start to have repetition and things. So what I, I get the reason I'm fascinated is because it's unusual. I've not heard of someone coming from, I guess, the film industry into an architectural yeah. industry. And I'm fascinated about the kind of cross-pollination of industries. Was was Tom up for it? Was he like, oh, this is completely out of my comfort zone? Or was he like... Just... Um, both. Yeah. <laughs> um, he, f- he felt it was a really interesting kind of proposition. And at the same time, I think it's it's also been quite tricky and I think you know you probably have to ask him but he's surprised at how slow the industry is to change and you know uh, and I sort of I get that from both sides you know we deal with a huge amount of money huge amount of investment in buildings so you naturally people have to be cautious either how you invest or how you build etc etc whereas in film and advertising things are much quicker Mm. and therefore can innovate much quicker but you know i think it's been really interesting having him on board and giving a different view of the world and that's really helpful for jonathan and i um putting up a kind of an educated layperson's view of what we're working on yeah it's like well that looks really interesting but it's boring or um it's really boring even though the story is really interesting or why, why are we doing that um so i think that makes us much sharper yeah i, I think i just th- i think the idea that you'd have someone with an outside perspective, come and help try and change things. I mean, I guess if we go back to the beginning of when you first started, um, were, were, there, were there milestones that you were really excited to hit? You know, like, oh, when I get my first paycheck, or as in like the check from a client, or when we get our, when I move into our first office, were, were these things that, were those milestones that you were really excited about, or were they just like, these are just problems I need to solve because the, the, the end goal of five years away is looming? Um, yeah, I think day one was very exciting. I'd been on a long weekend away, so I wasn't quite as fresh as I normally am. Um, and I remember having a meeting with the lawyer about signing off some paperwork and bits and pieces. Oh, hang on, this is really serious now. Um, and this is probably not the right frame of mind to be in to be doing something really serious. Uh, and had a phone call by midday from a, a really good client that I'd worked with before who wanted to do a piece of work. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Is this, is this what the next... By the time we get to Friday, we're going to be huge. Um, and I don't think we had another phone call for about three months. For that first um, day. It's a complete roller coaster. And, you know, it's it's as exciting as it is daunting. Um, and, you know, we've, we've had a tough sort of 12 months, um, to say the least. And actually, since we started, we've we've been pushing slightly against the kind of Brexit uncertainty. So I'm hoping soon. Yeah. Um, that things might actually start rolling a bit more sort of freely but you yeah, know it's it's great and it's you know when when you start employing people it's really fantastic because you're building a team you're bringing in to that conversation people with different backgrounds and different design cultures and i find that really fascinating um and balancing that against people who you know and love for years and can work together really fluidly yeah and starting to kind of get that mix works really well in terms of the quality of design, but also, you know, the interest of conversation you have around the studio and so forth. So so for people who want to understand the kind of speed of scale, I think I'm fascinated as yeah. in the number of people you had here, because um, I know there's people here who sat at the desk doing their architecture jogging. I'd love to start my own practice. And I'm sure the realities are so much more complicated. But you, where, where was your first office? So did you work from home for a bit or did you actually just go, let's, let's um, have a customer space? So our, our first office was, uh, we had six desks in Waterman's office over in uh, Borough Market. So they very kindly 
um, lent us some space for, and that made a huge difference to um, the kind of risk of running a practice and gave us a bit of stability, gives you a bit of credibility as well. Um, so they were they were very kind and very generous um, to us. So, that, so we, we thank them um, <laughs> as always. Um, and I think it's really nice to, you know, support young businesses as, as they sort of flourish and something that, you know, coming from a big practice, that's something very easy to do if you're 200 people and you've got six spare desks it's very hard to do if you're only six people <laughs> um so that that level of generosity i think is fantastic and you know we always try and find and think of ways that we can give back to people and then so you're at you're at waterman's office you've got your, you got, was it just you was it you and tom was it you because i think it, uh, i think it was just tom and i and um jonathan came he resigned the day we started i think if i remember that correctly yeah, so there's you know there's only two or three people there. We've got a few laptops, um, and then there's that thing of kind of putting the infrastructure together. So there's a sort of people thing, and that's that's sort of super critical. And we're obviously very kind of top heavy, if you like. But that was deliberate because that enables us to expand, give a really good quality of service. Um, and then the kind of infrastructure element was actually this is really easy because we can do everything off a laptop. Yeah, um, and we went cloud based on day one, which Every IT consultant I spoke to told me I was mad, um, and then sure enough, four years later, we find ourselves actually that was that worked out really well. But it, and it's it makes you much more nimble. And I think businesses setting up now are very different when we started make um, about fifteen years ago. We were like oh, we had servers, we had lots of conversations about not having paper filing, and how do we file these weird things called emails? Um, so that the transition in technology in terms of setting a business up in ten years is huge. Yeah. Um, it's very fluid. Um, when we had the first lockdown, we left on Monday night. We carried on working on Tuesday morning. We had two big um, tender deadlines on the Friday, which we hit. And, you know, the client was like, what, you still carried on? It's like, yeah, yeah it was absolutely fine. Much to our surprise as much as anybody else's. But I think that that forward looking to technology is really important in how you structure a business. Mm. So our business model of bringing in experts and being much more, much looser and more fluid with the team we work with only works actually when you have that technology sitting behind it. It would have been much harder 10 years ago to do what we do today. Yeah, because you, you've, um, I know it's on your website that you've, 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 you've got a kind of spider diagram or whatever, whatever, whatever type of diagram it's <laughs> called. And it says like what, what, what external consultants you use yeah. or people you work with. You work with Atlas and we've worked with Atlas at Make and... I guess that that's another thing that 10 years ago, that kind of working digitally across halfway, uh, for those who don't know, Atlas are kind of, are they Vietnamese cat company? Yeah. And they've, they've, they're, I mean, I worked to them for two years when I was at Make on Skyscraper and they were, they were just insanely good at just doing really good things quickly. And, and of course you get that kind of 24 hour working model where you can kind of like hand over in the evening and they've kind of done it in the morning. And yeah. I, I, yeah, I thought it was an interesting new change. Yeah. And it's, it, it's worth having a look at the diagram um, on the website. It took ages to do, and it's, I'm not entirely sure it's still right, to try and describe what we were trying to create and now have created. So we have a core team of people. We're, we're generally quite senior, you know, if, if you look at the sort of the experience and range of the kind of core team. We then have key experts that we bring in there. So we have Lara on interior design. She used to run a team of 35 people at Foster's. And... Um, she now works for us, so we could do an office reception to a you know A minus or a 
B plus, where she takes it to an A plus or beyond. Um, we have Adrian Gaynor on laboratory planning, who, who's amazing, used to run the HAK's uh, lab team. We've worked together for 10 years um, when we were doing uh, laboratories uh, for Oxford University. And and these are external consultants. These, these don't work in the office. These are. They, there's a bit of a mixture. And to be honest, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, and interesting, when you speak to people, they all put themselves in slightly different places in the bubble. And it's kind of like, actually, if you feel most comfortable there, that's fine. <laughs> um, and what we're trying to communicate to the outside world is this is about people. It's not about where people sit in the bubble. Mm. And you're employing those people. And that's exactly where that kind of ad agency film production background of Tom's comes from is like, okay, we're going to do a film. We're going to do star Wars. Who are the best people to do star Wars? And they're probably completely different to, um, you know, who you choose to do Peaky Blinders, (laughs) for example. And that was, that was the thing that really drove my interest in it is that you get the right people in to do the right job. Um, interestingly, all the people there, um, which is something we wanted to communicate early on day one is we've worked with for years. So Caravan, who do amazing uh, visualisation and illustrations for us, um, we'd worked with for five years. Atlas, I think we worked out, it was about £350 million worth of construction we'd built with them over years as experience. So these weren't people we just found on the internet. Yeah. These, are, these are really kind of nurtured and cherished relationships. Um, and I think when people say, oh, how many people are you? It's like, if you're a big practice, you go, oh, I'm 250 people. But that includes, you know, HR, IT, BIM, visualization, et cetera, et cetera. So part of the point of that model is it shows all those people we work with um, in and out. And we try and nurture those particular relationships really well um, so that it, it becomes a sort of flawless team. The other thing you've then got to put together with that is uh, processes. So QA... PI insurance, etc., has to kind of create, it has to be created like an umbrella that fits over the top of that so to make sure there's nothing falling sort of between the cracks. Yeah, because I, I th- it's interesting you said like cloud computing has changed a lot. I know that the new practice I work at Heta, they've um, just all, like so many like apps like Zero and all the like Harvest and timesheets and how automated everything is and how effortlessly simple a lot of this tech is to use now and it's just like oh yeah the, here's my timesheet here's my holiday sheet it's yeah. all just it's on an app it's so good and, I, like, and it changes very quickly as well so you can't be too wedded to certain ways of working and you know teams is a really good example where you know we no one heard of teams that i've ever met yeah <laughs> before march and now that's the only thing we all use I, I cannot believe how much we've all got <laughs> obsessed i mean interesting like the my practice that we would do a lot of projects in south korea so there was for us everything was very remote anyway so actually lockdown didn't make any difference to us and i'd already been working from home and things um but i st- i'm still i'm still fascinated so i guess from a business point of view how did you get your first project how, how did you like you have to pay yourself a wage tom wants a wage yeah jonathan's gonna want a wage there's, there's a lot of wages very quickly and you need fee earning projects and they need to be proper big projects how does that all work? Is that pre-existing relationship? Yeah, so uh, as we mentioned earlier, that first project came in literally as a phone call probably four hours after we started, which is weird and completely unheard of. Um, uh, and then the rest of that is, you know, a huge amount of work in kind of marketing, PR, new business. Um, and obviously most of that is around people you know. So, you know, business is done with people who know you. Um so you know talking to them working out what their needs are 
Um, we spent a lot of time uh, with Dean and Co, who did our branding, who who are fantastic at really kind of eking out of us what we were going to be about and are about now. Um, Tom and I sat, um, I think, upstairs in House of St Barnabas in Soho Square um, for probably about six months trying to work out what we were about. And uh, I think we've got it down to 10 A's, four sides. <laughs> so we, we gave that to Dean in case, look, we, we need some help here. Um, so they they were fantastic coming up with a name and really refining that kind of USP and that messaging. Um, and we've just gone back to that actually in the last couple of months and reworked that again with them. I That's my favorite part about the process. I, th- I think, you know, like the, the whole point of the podcast create more was kind of like a mantra you know just just do more stuff for the sake of doing it but i love coming up with the logo the branding the coloring that was one of the reasons i got my job at, at heta was that was the first thing i did was actually work to redevelop all this stuff and we got a pr agency in to try and help you know try and do this process it's such a, it's it's like therapy isn't it you're like <laughs> it, I, I found the whole process fascinating as long is you're all on the same page <laughs> and also did we, did we you and tom kind of did you develop it together or is, is fathom would he i don't know how, how does it work are you the yeah we we um we batted around i think what was in, really interesting is that tom coming from outside of architecture was a really good mirror for what an architect thought an architect's practice should be about and it's actually it shouldn't really about what an architect thinks it should be about it should be what you know, your clients and general public yeah. think it should be about. And then um, obviously as we, as we worked along with that, then Jonathan came in um, who um, we'd worked, already worked together for about nine years. So um, it, it was it was getting the right answer, I think, was most important. And the, the collaboration of those three mindsets actually makes it better. Mm. And, and it is much easier to do when you're starting from nothing yeah. <laughs> than it is when you have a practice and you're trying to rebrand or, or you're... You know, the classic one is you're trying to redo a website and suddenly actually unpicks a whole load of issues between partners, directors, or, um, you know, where's the business going, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, it was much easier to do, I think, from scratch. Because I, I really think that if, when the branding's done right and the ethos and the thought behind it builds such a strong foundation that you, it answers everyone's questions or it's always the kind of go-to art, like, why are we doing this? It's because of this reason. And then you, you, and then you come forward. And it, it, if everyone's on the same page, I think it's a really powerful tool. And what's your one? Your one's um, working on sensitive, I can't remember what it is. Complex projects and sensitive sites. Yeah, and it's, um, you know, the, the, there were two things we sort of recognised that we had a sort of skill in um, that we brought together, which we thought were two things you wouldn't necessarily bring together. So one is uh, the ability to work on complex projects. And I think that comes from being quite rigorous and logical in our thinking probably goes back to foster days of using the diagram to really kind of Mm. flush out um, problems and that enables you to do multiple uses stacked up in one building or building next to a railway line I was was looking at a project the other day that we worked on years ago and it's like my god it's it's by the Victoria main line which we kept six meters away so we didn't have to do any consultation with network rail Um, the columns in the front actually sit in a dock which is completely open to the Thames. So I was like, oh my God, I never really thought of it like that. And then, oh, by the way, there's a huge, all, all the sewage from south, uh, south uh, northwest London flows underneath it. And I thought, actually, you don't really get much more complicated than that. Um, and quite often you forget that. Um, so that, that's been, we had another project where we were, with, we're about a metre away from 
uh, the Hammersmith tube line. So if you dropped a brick under construction, you get a huge fine um, and, you know, and really dangerous. So, you know, on one hand, that works really well. And then on the completely other end of the scale is this idea of um, sort of sensitive sites. So both Jonathan and I studied at Bath. We'd actually lived in a World Heritage Centre uh, for um, sorry, World Heritage Site for four years each, sadly in different decades, and um, y- you have an understanding and a sensibility of working in conservation areas, listed buildings, and we we very much see them as a positive attribute rather than a constraint. So it's, it's sort of like six percent positive, forty percent tricky, rather yeah. than six percent tricky, forty percent positive. And once you flip that percentage over, the project flows really well. And I think what's unusual is having the ability to work in that logical, rational way and be sensitive at the same time. And that's really worked um, fantastically for us. At the same time, we do like nice, straightforward projects. Though. Oh, I bet you'd love a nice, straightforward project, wouldn't you? Um, and f- <coughs> funny enough, we um, we were doing some work on uh, some words with Dean and Co and Simon, who uh, we've been working with. There was, was a lovely moment back in sort of September and he said, oh, I remember doing the, the branding originally and, you know, looking at what you've done now, you know, four years later it's exactly what you said you were going to do and and he said it's it's really nice to come back to a brand and see how it's evolved and developed um which made doing the new words much easier (laughs) yeah because i I, one of the things i really like uh is is the kind of consistency across projects i you've i guess having the same visual style across them all really helps as well but i think you and jonathan from the times that i knew you worked at the last practice you kind of had a similar eye on things as well i mean when new people come to the practice i'm curious when you employ new people do they do they come because they like oh we want to design more of what you've designed we've seen your website we really like those projects so actually like actually it kind of self cycles you're getting more people who actually understand what fathom's about and then you get the right type of architects is it well like that um i think so probably more now than in the first couple of years um so Adam has been part of the team for a good few years now, came from South Africa. Um, and I think we worked out between us that his background in South Africa, people work in a very different way. And it was really hard, particularly in sort of the town planning element. It's like, I don't understand how this works. It's, it's, it's really grey and it's kind of really, it's really hard to navigate around. Um, but actually after sort of 12 months of sort of, starting to understand that and doing it a few times it's kind of oh yeah i get this now and, and so you've, you've got someone there with a, a different background and culture um adding something different but having understood um the sort of constraints that we, we work in here i think now we do get more people applying actually we just put a, an advert in last friday for new people and um there's more there to see <laughs> and there's more consistency probably yeah. Um, there than we're, what we had on day one, but I, I always worry we have we're too broad. You know, we have a huge range of building types. It's ridiculous. Um, but that's because we're not sectorized because we specialize in you know the, those sort of two areas. Um, and also, it's very hard to see that consistency from the inside, isn't it? I think you oh, yeah. you probably see it more easily than we do. Well, because I I, just, I I love the graphics. I, I love the kind of the style of everything. And I was just to, to give people a sense of scale as well. How many people are Fathom now? So we're about ten at the moment, but we you know we we scale up and down depending on um, what's happening. So uh, you know, Laura and Adrian, we use um, depending on 
how much interior design work we have and, and laboratory work we have. Um, we have a, another person, Ben, who works in um, oh, uh, digital environments. Um, so he works between sort of physical space and digital space. Really, really interesting um, person we started working with uh, about 12 months ago. Uh, and then, you know, you, you kind of come out. So, you know, as you mentioned earlier, we have Atlas who um, do production information for us. Um, Tina, we do detailed design. We think really hard about what the materials are made of, how it comes together, how you get the water out. Um, and they worry about, you know, what level we're we drawing it on, yeah. what spec tag we have. And I think it goes back to sort of the 70s and 80s where you'd have a drafting team would do the drafting and the architects would do... Um, the other bits and I think you know in all my career I've always felt creative architects that I've worked with have been not so good at doing production information it's a different part of the brain and you know Atlas do an amazing job at working through that and and also you know pulling us up on things as well and obviously that comes back through the through us that gets checked um and that as a process that works well so some days we could be 25 yeah but 25 people we know and have worked together with almost consistently for probably like 15 years um so it's it's a well-oiled machine so the question isn't quite right (laughs) and that's sort of the point of that bubble diagram if you like yeah and Um, do you you guys use revit or i'm just curious yeah We, we had a a tough uh call when we set up um because we all come from a microstation background. Mm, um, I love microstation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's like, oh, what do we do? It's like, oh, well, we can't not do Revit. And I think we we're probably about 12 months too soon for the kind of um, skill base to be there with architects. So, you know, trying to find people who had any Revit skill was hard work, um, let alone our own skills. And then to make it worse, it's like, well, if we're going to transition, there's no point buying microstation licenses. So we went cold turkey. No, so we went AutoCAD first, which was equally painful because, oh my God, I can't even print the file. It's like, ah, as a transition, because you don't want to, you know, you get AutoCAD at that time, you got it free with Revit. Um, So you don't want to buy two sets of extremely expensive licenses um, to do that. So that's been painful. But I think we're we're, we're coming out the other end of that really well. Um, Adam, from his background in South Africa, was bin manager for practice of 35 people. Perfect. Um, the only people we came across in the market who seemed to understand BIM four years ago were either South African or Australian. Yeah. They, they seem to be born with BIM. I don't, I don't know how that happened. I totally agree. And also the people who know it really, really well are so infuriatingly fast at using it. You're like, <laughs> oh, well, they can do that in five seconds. So why is it taking me four days to do a quarter of what he's done? It drives me mad. I was very excited today when Harry on our team um, turned around and said, oh, I think it'd be quicker for me to model it in Revit. And I was like, yes. <laughs> it's finally happened. I know we, we, we tried to use Revit on a big project, but it was just so cumbersome and slow for us because we don't have a Revit in-house manager or anything. So it's like... Back to AutoCAD and Rhino. Um, you started off, it sounded very plain sailing. You got a client on the very first day. Yeah. Has it, it can't have been plain sailing the entire time. What's um, what, What's been the challenge? Because you're essentially, yeah. the, all the responsibility rests on your shoulders. <laughs> I think um, one of the tricky things we had is um, being uh, a startup with big building experience. And we do, we've done a few sort of smaller things. Um, as part of that experience and that uh, was difficult because it's very hard for a client to give you um, big projects when there's only three or four of you sitting in a room and you've only been going for two months yeah 
and you know we had one long established client and they were like you know when i put you in my qa system it's just like red lights at every single stage um but we know you and we'll just turn those off um which is really lovely you know that those yeah. relationships kind of carry through so it's quite a hard slog um in those early stages but that said you don't need much um to, to make it work and sort of build up that kind of momentum um but yeah probably a little bit slower than we would have liked but because well, you 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 essentially are now so I, this one of my questions was you you know i know that you love designing and things but when you're now the leader of a practice so how much design have you had to like relinquish a lot of that and now now you're kind of more management or how do you balance the kind of love of architecture with actually just having to kind of steer the ship as well yeah i think i think it's important if when you're leading a practice compared with working within a practice even at a senior level within a practice um is to make sure that you can pull back and be strategic um and as a client said to me the other day it's like justin don't get lost in the weeds and it's like okay that's really good advice yeah <laughs> um and it's, it's quite hard to pull back because obviously you're in it every day so and you know having you know partners meetings and things and you know, having Tom and Jonathan there to kind of bounce those things off becomes um, really important. Uh, we haven't quite got to the stage of using kind of, you know, a lot of people have non-executive directors and things and we're, you know, we're way too small for that. But I think that's a bit of sounding board from people outside of the practice is really important. And quite often those conversations will happen with other people running businesses that I know or we know. Um, and they're quite surprising because they're completely applicable, whether it's an architect's practice, an M&E engineer's practice, yeah. somebody building electric bikes. You know, it's the, the issues are all the same. Um, and they, the people running those have probably more in common with you than the people in your practice because they're feeling that same um, weight, if you like. And so i guess so i'm thinking from my point of view when you're in a practice you never think about someone's laying the train tracks ahead and they've something you've got to keep those projects going you've got to keep the train tracks going because the train's rumbling along did, did were you anticipating that you, you that kind of pressure when you were at make because ultimately you're in a bigger system and now suddenly it's you you have to win these projects you have to be looking a year ahead or I, think, I think you do you know, I, I did feel it before, particularly when the risk, you know, financial crash happened. You know, there's a, there's a huge responsibility there to, you know, you're one of those people going out doing that, but you're not the one. Yeah. Um, and that, that's quite a difference. And actually, the, the first moment um, I felt, oh, the buck stops here was when we were doing the branding um, and sitting in the room and it's like, okay, so Dean and go, really good branding consultants, work with them, they know us really well. And I'm sitting there and going, okay, we've got some really good people around the table. And I think we've got it down to three names. And I, went, I deliberately went around each individual sitting there, the graphic designer, the kind of the account manager, the you know, Joy who runs it, Simon, um, Patrick, uh, Jonathan, myself, Tom. And I was like, okay, everyone's got a different view. And, and in my mind, I was like, oh, I've got my, it's like, okay, Justin, uh -oh. this, this, this is your turn. And it's like, Okay, so I've, in theory, I've put you know the best people together around the room to make this decision. So if I'm happy with all those people and the process has gone really well, actually the decision probably doesn't matter. Just make one. Yeah. <laughs> and it was it was weird because you'd think the name is really important, and actually the 
the putting the team together was the important bit for the person leading the business, not necessarily the answer. Um, I was like, okay, we'll go with that one then. That's a really good, that's, <laughs> I, I, I totally buy into that way of thinking. You're like, hang on, I'm surrounded by really good people. Any of these options is a good option. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you've, has, is there, have you managed to maintain a kind of, kind of consistent project pipeline or do you suddenly go, shit, we've got like five massive projects. Do you say no to projects? Do you, do you like just ramp up the team for a couple of months? It, like It goes up and down all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and when you least expect it, it's it's amazing. And uh, it goes back to that point right at the beginning of um, you know having large project experience, um, and that it does exasperate that kind of the peaks and troughs. And you know you've got to up resource, down resource, um, try and predict. So you know in, in an ideal world we have a you know a large number of medium sized projects. <laughs> um, and what you, what we normally end up with is one or two very large projects and then lots of really, really tiny projects. Um, so that that's that's tricky, but I think that's the same in any business. Nothing's um, nothing's smooth. Everything's quite lumpy. And I think growth is also not this nice sort of smooth um, curve. It's, it's more like a staircase that kind of goes up and then it goes flat for a bit and then it goes up again. And somewhere about halfway along the tread, um, everything's hunky-dory. Yeah. <laughs> Um, which is about once every six months. <laughs> you're like, do you have this moment? You're like, I need to enjoy this moment because it's only going to last about three or four days, and it doesn't happen very often. <laughs> and we, um, we, we, I think, actually mentioned it on a previous podcast. It's like we're really bad at celebrating things because you're always thinking about the, the next thing that needs sorting out. Or, um, and we're, we're lucky enough we've won some work in the last few, uh, first few days of this year. Um, so we've we've got a home delivery of Hawksmoor steaks oh. um, coming in a, in, a, in a week or two's time. We can find a delivery slot from them because it's like if, if you don't celebrate it now, it will turn into bad news at some point. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's right. Yeah, you, I mean that's that's the thing. You're so once you build a company, you know people come to you that this is their career. You know they take it really seriously. Like you have to be thinking. What do, what do people benefit by being here? Not, you know, there's the environment. I mean, you're in, how, we're in your new office, what, newish? You've been here for a couple of years, you say? Three. Oh, is it three? three? Yeah, three years, I think, coming up. But it's lovely. It's really nice. I think having a nice office space makes a huge difference. And I think post-COVID, which I thought I could say now, but <laughs> I can't. <Not> yeah. <laughs> the post-redo. Um, getting people to come in they need to feel like they're getting something back right so i i think like office culture is that is that something that's kind of key to you as well yeah and it's you know it's really important to get the right mix of people um you know the space but also um to make make sure everyone's properly contributing and you know are part of that decision making process and part of that design process it's not just you know this, this is not just okay go away and draw this up you know, it's like, you know, you, you've had seven, nine years of training. You're actually quite good at this at that point. So your creative input is really important um, as part of that. And then, um, you know, making sure the office environments, we're, we're, you know, we really love it. We've got an old, this is an old um, converted Victorian school. Um, so we've got, you know, sort of double height space. We've got north lights, got through ventilation. We've got nice bricks. Um, so, and... I think it's it's actually been a really good break for us over the you know the odd times that we've been able to come into the studio over the last twelve months. It's been I've I've certainly found it a really good kind of respite from 
um, lockdown and so forth. And I think quite a few of the team have, have found that quite helpful. So, oh yeah, I mean, we were saying before we started recording that you know having kids in the house, you're like. oh damn I've got to go into the office I would love to go into the office but it's like you know you said at the beginning um you had this plan of like I want an office I want it near London Bridge and and now you're here what what, like do you do you do you have like another five like five ten year goal I mean what 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 is success is it like is there a certain size is there a certain scale of project like what is it that kind of focuses you um scale of practice is a really interesting question and a lot of a lot of people I think ask that question on the basis of you know uh, how much income do you want to have or yeah. how many people do you want to have around and actually more is better <laughs> <laughs> and I I feel it's it's different to that I think it's actually about scale of project and I think um, you know the, there's a sort of sweet spot of project that let's say you know Alex, you know we really enjoy doing the sort of you know twenty to sixty seventy million pound scheme it's where our skill base is but they're sort of small enough to still move relatively. Um, small speedily i love it 70 million <laughs> but it but it's not a you know 200 million pound project that's going to last five or ten years um and if you marry that with small projects that you know in, in our world is kind of like you know one to five million say which are much much quicker that's actually really interesting for people because you can go start to finish within 12 months potentially mm. on some of them that's really good for part three it's really good for learning you get you know, rather than being stuck on a reflective ceiling plan for two years, <laughs> over forty stories, you're you know you're you're in and out. You've done every single bit of a project. You know, we've got a few um, heritage buildings that are on site at the moment, and you know you're flipping from doing loose to toilets to front doors to tiling um, to paint finishes, um, all within the same meeting, and that's that's really nice in in a small kind of compact team. So to do that sweet spot of project, you then want to work out okay, really I need four, five, six, ten of those mm. so that when one stops, you can absorb that team into the other projects um, rather than being a massive cliff face. So it gives you much more stability in your income stream rather than having one million pound project that if it stops um, means you've got to lose you know, half the practice. Yeah. So actually so the number of people comes down to resilience as much as, you know, yeah. if, for example, if I could guarantee you the three perfect projects that you could have every year and that would never change would would you stick at this size or do you, do you think bigger because i guess you get quite you, you have a hand in a lot of projects you see a lot whereas the, the bigger the scale i guess ultimately you have to, to kind of diverse responsibility yeah I, th- I think given the size of projects i think we need to be a bit bigger um to make it less kind of lumpy mm. for want of a better word <laughs> and you you can't just isolate one of those things you know it's it's unrealistic to say, okay, you know, forgetting the lumpiness of the income, what what would your dream be? Because actually, running a business is about balancing all those different things, um, and I, and I think that's that's probably the biggest um, message, if you like, is actually you can't just be idealistic about one thing that turns into a really nice brand. You've got to balance that against everything else, and ultimately, um, you know, you have to pay people's rent and mortgage and salaries at the end of every month so you know it's it's balancing that so do you think do you have it like a five-year another five-year aspiration like to double triple in size or well i've a five-year anniversary is coming up on the um fourth of may this year so nice. it's it's our task between now and then to sort of sit sit down and kind of flush out what that uh, what that looks like um so hopefully the pandemic might be behind us at some point God, I hope um, so. 
hopefully got a few more wrinkles to iron out in Brexit. Um, it's been a, yeah. But, but I, th- I think now we're starting to, you know, we've we've got some projects. We've got two or three projects finishing um, soon. Um, we've got a fantastic project that we finished. We PC'd um, a week before lockdown and photographed the day before lockdown that is ready to be launched. It's still sitting there nine months later. It's such a shame. Um, and, you know, those moments are really fantastic that, you know, you've you've built something and I, I love building things. My yeah. father was a builder. Um, I get I get a huge amount of excitement about that lovely smell of um, like concrete and timber when you walk past the building sites. Like, oh, yes, that's what we're here to do. Um, so getting something out at the other end um, of that is, is really critical. Um, and I think will really help us grow as a business. And then there's obviously there's a lot of projects on the website that hopefully demonstrate our uh, you know sensibility and technical capability yeah because it, it's interesting you say the smell of a construction site and things um when i was on broadgate you know you're in a site office for so long too long <laughs> but there is something incredibly like there's something exciting about being on a construction site it's kind of slightly manic slightly chaotic there's a there's an intensity to it i think i think actually like you've got quite an appealing um job description for an, a new architect right you know because there's something like the bigger practice you know like other practices that we won't name you know you might work on projects for five years and never build anything you know yeah. that, that's happened to me or you know hats off to the, the master planners because they, they work on stuff for years and years and years and then you know someone else builds it uh, yeah. if you're lucky <laughs> um so you know I, I have a huge amount of respect for people able to work on that it's like it's a very different plane of thinking, I think, and output, if you wish. So, do you, do, I guess I, I mean we're coming out to time now, so I'll, I'll end on this question. But um, do, are there are there kind of trends or technologies or directions of architecture that you're like, oh, we should go after that? You know, do, do, are you looking ahead to things that excite you as, as collectively an office? Yeah. You're all fascinated by AI or VR or something. You know, yeah, do, yeah. do you have those things? I th- I, 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 I can't remember one conversation we haven't had in the last nine months about the future of anything. <laughs> future of the workplace, um, future of the high streets, um, future of uh, residential, you know, and that what's been fantastic about the last nine months is it's really helped us question that. And I think it's increased the rate of change in an industry that is generally not known for uh, its pace of change because of that risk element. And I think there's, oh, we had to do that. So, you know, suddenly everybody's flexibly working and everyone's working from home. People have been doing that for years, but just not very many. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's actually been really positive. Um, the high street, sadly, has been di- dying for years since the internet's come in. And I think that will really help us get over that industrial inertia. Of instead of going, oh, I've got all these empty shots, what do I put in them? It's going the other way around. It's like, okay, um, we did a, p- a piece of work on the future of the high street this time last year even pre-pandemic actually it's like well let's stop talking about real estate let's talk about shopping and the internet and then let's think about what a physical manifestation of that would look like um, which is where ben kind of came in and that's really really fascinating and now that's completely you know it was much more relevant than when we looked at 12 months ago um so that, those are good I, i'm it could go, but just sticking on that, is, is that born out of a kind of, we're doing similar things and I think it's born out of knowing the right type of clients who, uh, n- not that it's not impacting us all as well, but a lot of our clients happen to be like, honestly, what do we do with all this retail space? And, and also, uh, not mentioning names, people who we know are working on big projects near Oxford Street, suddenly 
the the bottom's just fallen out of retail and now the kind of the development models don't stack up so suddenly everyone's like what do we what do we do with retail do you, is it because you think a lot of cl- it's an answer to some clients questions yeah i think you know every client's different and you know if you're talking to a client whose core business is tech yeah it's very different if you're talking to a client whose core business is estate management it's, it's huge that they really shouldn't be that different but they are because they have different business drivers um so i I think, you know, you have to do it on a project by project basis, but sometimes it's good to sort of pull back. So um, we've got this lovely project down in Woking, which is um, Christchurch Woking, which is a lovely Victorian listed um, church right in the centre of Woking Tansen. And uh, it's right on the high street. It's opposite Paper Chase and Starbucks. It's not even set back a metre from the high street. And they run a lovely cafe. They've been doing it for years, a bookshop and a kind of conference suite. And, you know, they came to say, came to us, said, you know, we're, we're, we're thriving, we want to expand. This was about two or three years ago. Um, we won the job in a competition. And we were sitting here over this year talking about the future of the high street. And I was like, hang on, we've, we've already done it. It's Christchurch Woking. And we've got this, you know, lovely expanded cafe that we've now got planning consent for, bookshop. And, and it's like, if you cover up the rest of the project and just look at the the ground floor they're all shop fronts but it's a church and if you think about what the high street was about it was it was about community and if you think about what a church was about it was about community and they're the sort of the same thing so it's it, i think that conversation is very much about use and creating places not just creating shops which is a kind of monoculture um of leisure-based retail and i think that's the thing that we've we've got to get our head around really quickly um, in order to kind of make that work. I think that then leads to all sorts of questions about um, how do you rentalize space when uh, your shop is taking more income from uh, its website because it's got a retail presence on a high street. So so that the rental model is got, it's got to be completely turned upside down. So that there's so many other manifestations before you get down to what is what should a shop look like yeah um there's a really interesting um company worth having a look at if you're interested in retail is called souk so i was just about to say that okay um they've i went past their unit on oxford street i think they've got a second one opening in london soon they've got one in cambridge um one opening in edinburgh where you rent the shop by the hour and it's like oh my god that's genius because you know most retailers high street retailers um operate kind of you know, sort of Friday to Sunday is their core area of um, sales and the rest of the week they don't really do a huge amount. So you flip it over and go, okay, we well, can be a yoga studio um, for a number of days and you've got digital wallpapers, it's called, um, lining the units. You can brand it, you can bring your stuff in, move it around. So I think, you know, some really interesting things yeah. going on in that space. I, I spoke to their, their like head of advertising. I was doing an esports talk and he was like, all right, because I was talking about like digital infrastructure and, and he was saying, oh yeah, you can have like a, instagram person who sells bespoke sneakers trainers or whatever and just for one day in a month you can just hire it out for one evening and yeah. have because there's got massive screens make it look incredible yeah. and that's all he has to have and i was like yeah that's like tripling the amount of uses you can get in a single day yeah. i thought it was really interesting and i you know and the other part of your question there was about tech and i think i'm slightly geeky in my uh, subscription to the new scientist i I'm, I'm struggling to find an article that I've not read in the last six months in the New Sciences that hasn't mentioned AI. Yeah. You know, DeepMind is, is a really fascinating, you know, if you walk around King's Cross, they're everywhere. Um, if you look at the implications of that in medical science, it's huge. 
um, we did some work um, on a scheme down in Bletchley and looking at, you know, where the, where the future needs are and um, things like quantum computing are real. And it's like, I still can't get my head. I don't really understand what it is. Um, but I, I think the, the general premise is that traditional computing is running out of power and we need to flip to a different model of computing. Um, so people want to build these things, they want to test them. And that's equally important to something like medical science as it is to gaming or the film industry, um, as it is to you know running a business. So you, you think about those kind of Microsoft apps or um, content manager, uh, client management systems and things, websites, cookies, all that, that whole world. And I think we need to really think carefully about the ethical use of data and the processing opportunities that that offers and I, I think it's a really really interesting time and you know the, the work we've done with the medical scientists in oxford um over the years one of the things that i've really learned from that is that they they do spend as much time thinking about the ethics of something they're doing as, as the actual science and i think that's the bit that maybe the, doesn't come across with the big tech companies yeah it's interesting i guess the tech companies just they operate at such a pace they just don't stop and think well, I'm sure they do, and then they work out, can they get sued for it, and they go, no. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, but we've also got to remember that they've delivered an amazing rate of change and innovation in the last, you know, probably even 10 years. You know, mobile mo- mobile smartphones and mobile data has, has totally transformed our life. We, we, we have a very different COVID lockdown oh. if it wasn't for that. So it's, it is balancing the huge positives that come with that with the kind of negatives that we see in the press. And I think, you know, it's it's... It's, it's an interesting one and I think it's a fantastic space to be thinking about. So, because, yeah, I think, um, yeah, imagine a COVID five years ago, ten years ago. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Landlines everywhere. Yeah. Or dial-up internet, you know. Remember that. God. <laughs> well, we're going to wrap it up there and I just want to say thank you and it's I absolutely love your office space and uh, you should go on the Fathom website because there's some really, really lovely projects, especially the uh, uh, Christchurch uh, expansion. Is that being built? Uh, we got planning, um, so yeah, we're, we're they, you know, they're they're looking after their members at the moment. Obviously, through COVID, that's quite tough. Um, so we we hope that goes forward soon. Oh, I love that scheme. Uh, right, well, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Thanks for coming in. Nice. I hope that was interesting. That really was. Thank you. There you go. That was Justin Nichols, the co-founder of Fathom Architects. I hope you really enjoyed that. I um. It was just great to go to his studio and to, to kind of chat to him in person, um, obviously, before all this kicked off, uh, all this lockdown shenanigans kicked off in uh, January. But uh, this is one of the things I love about doing the podcast. You get to go to the studios. It's great. So thank you so much to, to Justin. And they've got loads of really, really cool projects in the pipeline and loads that they've done. And they just they, they just keep pushing out really interesting stuff. So Thank you so much for listening. The next episode is with David Illingworth, who is the co-founder of London Structures Lab, who are an innovative new structural engineering company in London. So we talk about loads of stuff. So that's really fun. So uh, click subscribe if you enjoyed that. You can find more podcasts on our website at www.createmorepodcast.com or you can find us at Instagram at createmorepodcasts. Um, so thank you so much for listening and tune in next week. Bye. Bye. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.